Wild, wild west. Westerns that are wild. Wild, wild west. Westerns that are wild. Oh, and for our our, our page, because I sent you the action shot in the description. I don't know. You can you can attach like Lady Vengeance or The Incredibles or one of the better movie right. casts for that one. Jigga wugga. I just need. I'll have to flam. get you lose. I just need to take a picture of him because his action shot. I just I see him in it all the time. I just haven't <laughs> photographed it. It's basically just him at his desk like this, <laughs> <laughs> which he spends most of his day like that is. That is most of his days actually. Living the life. Yeah, yeah like yeah. headset on. He's now, there's now six screens that encompass him. That's a him lot. Like that that's is a, ten, that's that's a lot of screens. Laptop, screen. Oh, no, wait. Five. Oh, oh, if we're counting five. that shit. Okay. It's laptop, screen. Sc sc no, six. Laptop, screen, screen, screen. Extra TV in the back. Another laptop. Solid. Uh... Damn, no wonder he's fucking exhausted. I, I gotta, yeah. I gotta catch up. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you. <laughs> no, you should just invest in a VR headset because now you can do virtual desktops with that oh, shit. Oh, so you can do like the Tony Stark thing? What? That that's slightly out of reach still, but you can get. Well, I'll wait till it upgrades yeah. but you to can that get, level. Well, no, because the problem is you need like power gloves for that shit to oh, work. Okay. Nice little. Although actually, I was looking at there's there's a company that sells touchscreen yeah. membranes, so you just. You get a TV, okay, and then you make that happen. That's that's a stupid project. If I can figure out how to break six figures, I'll I know I felt that. I felt sad listening to your last podcast because <clears throat> I was like, I have tons of projects that just get sat in a box and never get picked up. It's the like, fucking worst. It's the I like I I really want to start sewing again, and the best I've done is darn a pair of socks this year. Oh, it's a load of horseshit. I know. I've got a sock monkey that needs repairing. <laughs> okay, okay. Does <laughs> so it give you something simple? That, yeah, well, that's that. Well, that's how you have to kind of like work up to it. And it's not like yeah. I don't have like a ton of even just small projects to like work up to a bigger project. I just don't fucking get any projects done. It's like all either like taking care of animals, cooking food, or just being fucking tired. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, I, it's whenever work rears its head, whenever yeah. stuff needs to get done, as it always does need yeah. to get done. I mean, I just, I finally, I I sat down and I prioritized. And you, always, and you always bring up that this is water, which just me thinking about that speech brings me to tears it's every so fucking good. time. It's so good. Like when you did good. the two minute where you're like, just watch. This yeah. I'm like in the car, just fucking crying. <laughs> I'm like, so good. all I'm doing is listening to David tell me to Gosh. watch this, oh, and I'm so affected by it. Like just, just from like that, I'm like in the car. I'm just like, this is, this is water. Oh my god, uh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> I know, so, I know. It's so good. It's like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm just thinking I'm about so that. Brave. Speech. I'm so brave. <laughs> and it's, and it's just. It's so not him. Yeah, that's what makes it so good. Well, that's what I mean. Well, <laughs> no, but it, but it's funny because it's like, in essence, like so much of him is like trying to find a way to like improve to also upon, cope like with these yeah. things that he's bringing up. Like it's, it's, it's e cool because Plurum's all about that shit. It's mm. it's it's what in the world can we do? How do we get our world back? Yeah, from. From the prosperity that we sunk it into. <laughs> I, was, I forget his, he had a quote in an interview one time. Uh, it's, 
basically describing his entire attitude is, or his, the primary observation behind Infinite Jest at the time, but even just going forward is, everyone in my generation is well off, and we're all so sad about it. I know, <laughs> I know. Well, it's funny because have you seen the um, the end of the tour that uh, the drum the movie about? Um, about no, I've not on seen the book? that. It's not. Oh, I haven't seen. It's that. It's pretty cool, man. The guy from um, I don't know if this show means I don't even know the name of the show. How I Met Your Mother. He plays David Foster Wallace. Now, I've never seen that the show. The Segel guy. Yeah. Okay. And okay. he's I'm fucking. I'm familiar with him from the Russell Brand movie. Yeah, and he's cool in this. Yeah, he's got. Yeah, that's not yeah. a bad movie either. That's a great movie. So like he's he plays DFW and. Like, the way that he plays him, like, I didn't get, because I was like, well, you know, the performance, I didn't get hung up on it because I was, like, so interested more in what was being said yeah. than, like, what was, like, than how it was being said. So it was kind of cool because then I could, like, if it's good or bad performance, I don't necessarily give a shit. I mean, obviously, it'll affect the overall it's movie. It's content as well. Yeah, yeah. But, like, but, like, the way that, like, because that's the, from what I understand, that the dialogue in the film is very, very close to the recordings that the okay. guy has of the okay. interview. Uh. And so, like, you know, you get what how DFW, like, communicates, because I think he is a very... One thing, like, much like Greg talks about, the guy's, like, the, there's a problem of being insensitive, where you've, like, closed yourself off from the world. But the other problem is where you've, like, opened yourself up to the world, like, too much. And, and like, you too have much to is coming in. Yeah, yeah, like, and, like, so you get a sense that, like, the way that he is so harsh and critical on pop culture... You also find that he's a fucking whore for pop culture. Yeah, like, he, like M&Ms is like, oh man, like I can't do this because I all I would do would eat fuck be fucking eating M&Ms because they're just so base pleasure. He can only talk about TV as sophisticatedly as he does because he watches a ton. Yes, of it. exactly, and that's where but where you get the sense that you know he admires and enjoys it, and yet recognizes that in that enjoyment there is a fucking sense of deep deep desolation that something's he wrong yeah exactly but <laughs> it's that all the time. yeah but it's precisely because it's enjoyable i've discovered the show my 600 pound life <laughs> oh good christ <laughs> dude fat people grow these huge like ball sacks out of the sides of their legs and their stomachs they're called lymphedemas. Lymphedemas? That oh doesn't my... need its own name. They're terrifying. That's... Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> my 600 pound life. Well, was it? Mandy was watching like my addiction. And it's like people that okay, get addicted. I, I, I saw a preview for that because that, yeah. Hulu suggested that I watch that after I ran out of fat people programs. And there was a girl eating cat fur. And yeah. I was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't watch it. <laughs> like, like... I turned it off. She's like she was licking, like, the, licking, cat. Yeah. Oh, she was licking the cat. I, I had to stop. I was like, I got to find more fat people because my human misery only goes so far. <laughs> okay. All right, let's talk about a Western. Let's, oh, let's, man. Let's, let's, light, let's lighten this fucker up. Oh, that's so good. Where do we go from here? <laughs> well, we got giggling, so that's good. We go, we go backwards. We go back way far back. This is the Machination Log for June 30th, 2016. This is David Paddock. We've got the original movie crew in the house. Movie crew prime. Ye Yahoo. Ryan Riley, Nicole Paddock. <laughs> I'm here. Missouri Breaks. Yes. Ryan, let's talk about it. So I've, um, I think that I've got two kind of broad ways to, to, uh, to think about this movie. Um, but the first way I'll just, uh, if I'm going to introduce it, I'll say that it is a Western. Uh, now, for when you look up Westerns on Wikipedia, which I did uh, shortly before the, before I came here today, um, 
I went through and I was just kind of glancing through like, well, what is, if you, if people were to look up a Western, what do they see? Uh, and you see that there are kind of this like huge, like lists of, of different types of Westerns, but for simplicity's sake, I think I want to look at the idea of there being like classic Westerns. And then where this movie fits into is not as a classic Western, but what I'll call uh, anti-Westerns. So to kind of set us up where we're going here, uh, when we look at, or when you want to watch The Missouri Breaks, which is a 1976 film directed by Arthur Penn, starring uh, Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando. Uh, when you want to begin to watch this movie, I think it's helpful to kind of understand that this is a film that is directly confronting a very massive part of American cultural identity. Uh, now, if we are, especially in our generation, Westerns are not the kind of formative experience for things that it were for people like our parents and for our grandparents. No, but John it, Wayne is no longer a household Yes, exactly. Name. But, yeah. like, but, but John Wayne is very important to people who would be over 40. I mean, they would have known who that is. You would have known maybe some movies that were, he was in. Or Clint Eastwood, like Clint for Eastwood people like well. uh, like my dad and stuff, like you know, yeah. Clint Eastwood movies would be on the TV when I was growing up a lot. Absolutely, and well, and most of our generation at least knows who he is, even yeah. if they don't really know what he's about. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, but there's this like you like you did though, woo woo woo, you yeah. know, like those kind of ideas. I don't have, a, unfortunately, I don't have my recorder with me. I can't, I can't <laughs> do a musical. But like these implementation, these things have kind of like infused our culture. And in a very real way, I think that, you know, film, especially as it, you know, shows historical uh, eras in our culture, I, it, it represents what our culture thinks of itself. Well, and then and then the Western in general is a pretty uniquely American. It's like a yes. pretty uniquely American culture genre because, I mean, you know, we're uh, America is where we had the Wild West. Like this mm -hmm. is an intrinsic part of kind of our culture. Culture. We're, we're mm -hmm. one of the only places that, at least within the sphere of cultural relevance that America is part of, including Europe and mm -hmm. parts of Asia that we conquered at one point or another, um, there just aren't that many places in the world that are completely unexplored territory that we are that close to. I mean, there are parts of Africa that absolutely qualify for that, but we we weren't there. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, we it, were here. And it, yeah, it isn't home. Like, yeah. we, you know, Americans have this kind of real appropriative identity with the West. That, you know, for our, for us, it is this, you know, it, you know, it, if we're going to take these, you know, sociological approach, it is the you have period. To. Yeah. The, it, the yeah. period in which industrialization is brought to the last area where Western culture has its most influence. And, you know, there's, there's so much within the Western genre. And like you said, it is uniquely American. And, uh, you know, the same way that I think the Western is kind of uniquely American in terms of film and other types of visual media. Uh, very much like jazz is kind of the quintessential American musical form. And when we look at or talk about Western Speaking films, of which. yeah, when we look at or think about or talk about Westerns, um, and so we, I want to kind of define if I could for just a second here. Yeah, give us, why don't you give us a rundown of what a classic Western is, mm -hmm. and then we can kind of deviate from there because I do have, um, for the end of this, I do have my favorite non-traditional Westerns. I put Excellent. a list together. So, um, so, okay, good. So the idea is, is that, Basically, the Western is set from a time period between, you know, around the Civil War and before the 1910s, west of the Mississippi, right? That's kind of the geographical area and time period that, this, that most, of West, most Westerns are set, especially in this classic period. Mm -hmm. The next thing is, is that classic Westerns really are about kind of reminiscing or revering this period uh, of Americana. And these films and the classic Westerns will kind of stage them. We'll put them in the modern era of film, meaning talkies and things like that. 
uh, from about the 1930s into the 1960s, so about 40 years or so, there is a dedicated media culture around the reverence towards this geographical and temporal period of American history. And it is called the West, the yeah. Wild West, right? They have these kinds of connotations. Well, because we were moving from East to West. Yes. So it was also it was also the movement of our culture, like in a this, yeah. in a literal exodus sort of way. Yeah, very cool. And like uh, and, well. and completely disorganized. Yes. <laughs> Hence wild. Well, also, yeah, it is that and, and that's the kind of the key things here, is that it is um a kind of representation of of, of Americanness outside of society. Right, there's an idea that there is this, you know, this man against nature kind of themes running through the West. There's law and lawlessness about the ideas of the West. There is, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the Westerns, even especially in the classic period, are kind of these allegorical tales. I mean, so let me just give you some. What, what the hell is a classic Western? Well, if you've ever heard of something like the Lone Ranger, right? This is kind of the classic idea of what it is or what it means to be in the West, right? And you know, uh, the Lone Ranger is uh, he's an outlaw. And yet is stands for and represents justice, right? Like a, like a Robin Hood, right? Yeah. Who you know flaunts the law and to achieve a certain kind of justice, right? And I think that this inherently appeals to a certain amount of Americanness because you know if you take a town that isn't in a state, right? The West is not a state; it is just open territory, and you establish a town of Americans here, right? What do they do, and how do they build up this area? And a lot of this, a lot of westerns kind of take place. You know, in this area that where no government is, and yet American society is located. And so, yeah, okay, so just to run down there, if we're going to talk about the history of cinema or films, you've got some like classic westerns like Stagecoach. Uh, you've got some classic westerns like Rio Bravo. Um, you've got some, you know, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Like, there's all these kinds of very, very famous western movies that are within this, but also in television. So. If you look oh, at yeah, something like Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Bonanza, The Virginian, The Rifleman, which was something one of my favorites as a kid growing up. Oh hell, um, you know, uh, um, Medicine Woman. What's her name? Oh, Doctor Quinn. Doctor Quinn, Medicine Woman, Little House on the Prairie. Yeah, like this is a huge part of American culture. And by the way, I'm still missing things like like Rawhide, um, like the Wild Wild West itself, mm -hmm. the TV show. It goes on and on and on and on. Uh, Laramie, about, uh, but anyway, so Louis Lamore novels. Yeah, <laughs> so. What is it about the classic Western that we're kind of investigating here? Well, I think there's some kind of basic tropes or, or themes running through it. One is the idea of decency and justice. The second one is how is that achieved? You usually will have a kind of reverence to either the outlaw as the, as the personification of justice or the lawman, the sheriff. Uh, you then have some sort of violent or selfish nature that kind of impedes on or contradicts this kind of lawfulness or the inherent goodness well, that can be in place usually here. Uh, usually the backstory in these westerns is that you've got you know a small group of people just trying to grind out a living yes. in this rough terrain and then usually you know they they are either attacked or destroyed or disrupted by someone of a lesser moral stature in, in a lot of ways this ends up being a second order. I've been using the word second order so often recently, but I'm going to use it again because it's still appropriate here. <laughs> it's, it's second order American because everybody in America already came to the land of opportunity. They already, they already crossed the ocean or came up or came down to get here. 
And that was an ambition, and they had to overcome the obstacles mm-hmm. of leaving their hometown to be part of something theoretically greater. But there was civilization on the other side mm-hmm. most of the time when we're talking about First Order America. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, the Western gives us a second version of that where there is actual lawlessness. Yes. It's as close as anyone has ever gotten to what we basically assume the world looks like in a tabletop RPG where you go off and there's literally gold to be found. (laughs) Like it's not being guarded by dragons. It's being guarded by Indians sometimes. Um, But all of those, the the elements of a Western are crazy. Like the appeal of them is obvious Mm -hmm. because there is just, it's not necessarily black and white, but they're so stark in their design because the state has not, just there, there's no rule of law. Even well, with a sheriff, a sheriff has to physically embody the yes, law. Yes, exactly. And there's nothing above or below him. And but it's kind of funny that there's this. You get this. I mean, it is literally the rags to riches t- tale o- told over and over again, right? Through yeah. people strike out into a virgin land and through hard work and perseverance seek to overcome all obstacles, be it nature itself, be it this like representation of savagery and selfishness, usually personified by Indians or by rustlers or by, you know, uh, thieves and, 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 um, uh, and, and, and outlaws. outlaws. Yeah. Yep. You know, like criminals. And, you know, there is this kind of uh, against all odds persevering with the classic American virtues, right? With fairness, with hard work, with intuition, with, uh, with, you know, the, the subtle working class genius that we like to, you know, pretend that our society values and enhances. Good God-fearing people. Exactly. And yeah. like there's the, but once again, like, I mean, that's a cool vision of yourself. I mean, there's a kind of neat sense that, that America could be a place where someone could achieve doing that. And I think it's something that, you know, when we look at ourselves, this might be the useful fiction, right? This might be the big lie that Americans tell themselves. But in the realm of big lies, like, it's not a bad lie to have a society based on. It's a gorgeous one. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And so, you know, you can imagine, you know, like a tiny seven-year-old Ryan Riley, right? Like sitting on his dad's floor with, you know, a little tie and vest, you know, like sitting down watching Westerns after school one day. And, uh, but, but I grew up with Westerns, right? I mean, this is something that was integral to my life. It was something that I enjoyed with my father when I was young. Um, I meant the shows I'd mentioned, the wild, wild west, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, uh, the rifleman. I had probably seen hundreds of episodes of those film, uh, of those shows. <laughs> um, we used to watch the Westerns that came on television in, in the early afternoon together. Um, so this is something, uh, that I'm steeped in, right? This is something that I grew up in that I was based in. And I do enjoy them. However, I also find them to be inherently lacking. The, the allegorical and, and, a, uh, and, the, and the moralism within them, looking back on them and, and even watching them into my teens and into my 20s, you know, like you get the sense that this is, you know, simplistic, right? That these are morality tales meant to be told to a simple people. And ones that really don't reflect the kind of complex times that one encounters as an adult. And yet this was still something that people, I think, looked to and, and revered as some sort of ideal. And yet, you know, looking at it in, in modern, later 20th century eyes, they're naive. And it is out of this sense that these films are naive, that they are not representative. And indeed, the justice that is sought within these little allegories is not, in, in a sense, a a realizable or even maybe a desirable form of justice. 
And out of the kind of classic, out of the rebellion of classic Westerns, we get a, a genre of Westerns beginning in the mid-1960s on through the 70s, uh, which we can kind of categorize as anti-Westerns. And really, really, if you've even watched Western movies, you know, like Unforgiven is a good example of well, this. Well, that was kind of a resurgence of yes, the, in the Western genre. Yes, in the early genre. 1990s, um, where that kind of comes out of this. Yeah. Um, but even today, you know, like, uh, you know, Breaking Bad with its kind of aesthetic of the desert. Uh, well, where even it's your located. show Deadwood. Deadwood is, once again, a brilliant representation of modern Westerns. These are still also steeped in that anti-Western tradition. So, as they have to be to appeal to a modern audience. Yes, exactly. Because we, as a society, recognize the world is not that simple, right? There is not the white hat sheriff and the black hat bandit. And we just we straight don't up don't accept that anymore yeah, exactly. in our stories. So, all right, how do the Westerns change and how do we get the Missouri breaks? Well, I think, are we ready to just kind of dive into this thing to kind of set up about how this movie is different from classical Westerns so that we can begin to define anti Western as we go through? Let's go with yes. All right, sounds good. <laughs> uh, so let's go ahead and so give us the breaks. Yeah, so get it. Yeah, the breaks. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the Missouri Breaks is, in a sense, a simple movie. There is a community of ranchers dominated by the Braxtons, a family. Uh, the Braxtons are having their uh, business affected by cattle rustlers, people who steal uh, horses or cattle at a and, rate of 7% per annum. Yeah. <laughs> Affecting his profit margins at the uh, at the lower end, uh, and these cattle rustlers begin a kind of tit for tat revenge plot with the Braxtons, uh, culminating in the hiring of a regulator by the Braxtons to end the rustlers' business, right? To to eliminate the outlaws. Yeah. So just just on a, just on a lingo note here. Yeah. Oh, thank okay. you. Okay. Yeah. So one of the things you notice right off the bat in this movie, and they do, you know, you do, you do catch on after a while, but there is a lot of lingo that I'm going to assume is, you know. Lost on most modern audiences. Well, not so much lost, but it's very specific to the time period. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a horse rustler is basically a horse thief, yes. um, but it's the nice way we refer to all of our main characters who are all horse thieves mm -hmm. at the end of the day. The rustlers, yeah. Yes. Regulator is basically, you know, kind of like a uh, a for hire uh, security guard. Yep. So my my understanding of the history behind this is probably a little fuzzy, but regulator came about as a euphemism for a vigilante that was deputized. Yes. That's what I mean. Yeah. So um, he's like your rent a cop and, that you hire independently when you are having an issue. And aside from being a very late twentieth century badass name for a deputized vigilante, um, oh yeah. There's apparently an entire extra sect in the middle of this uh, outpouring of regulators in the Republic of Texas that resulted in a second band of people who kept an eye on the regulators called the moderators. Nice. And that is brilliant. And there is actually a scuffle that occurred sometime in the 1800s called the Regulator Moderator War. Nice. Which might be this is all before George Orwell, you mean? Which is the most cyberpunk name for a conflict <laughs> I've ever heard. I was gonna before. say that sounds like a Reddit conflict if I've ever heard one. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. I just I had to get that in there because okay. it's too good. And another another fine piece of lingo, just in case it doesn't get brought up at any point, is the dry gulture. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, dry gulture is a guy who kills someone at a distance, right? Yeah. Like someone who's hired, but you know, once again, you it's know, like someone, in, it's someone who kills in cold blood. Or, yes. or like, you would shoot someone in the back so they don't, it's not even a fair fight. Like yeah, you wouldn't exactly. even know they were coming yeah, up. Yeah, it's, it is a pejorative term. And to the movie's credit, when the terms need to be defined, 
They do define them. They do define them. Mm-hmm. But you do you do get actually right at the beginning of the movie, you do get bombarded with uh, a lot of this Western lingo. And you got to kind of get through the movie a little yep. farther before some of this lingo starts really, you know, sinking in. So, I mean, but when you watch the the, the Missouri breaks, the, the first, I mean, about 10 to 15 minutes into this film, um, I think most viewers are aware that this is not your normal movie. Uh, for one thing, that I think... The beginning opening sequence is a series of, uh, it's an open field, and you see three riders approaching into the camera slowly, with the credits going through and the music uh, beginning. Music by John Williams, by the way, fresh off the uh, Jaws syndicate. And, and you'd never know it. Yes. Um, and I don't the, know what he was saying. Yeah, we'll get into the music Jazz here. Jazz Western. Yeah, we'll get into the music in just a second here. But like, but this as the three men come in, they have a small conversation, you know, and it's not immediately clear exactly what they're talking about. They're, you know, they talk about how... You know things look now, and you know you know things look different. He's like, yeah, it's it's it is beautiful out here. Uh, and as the three men then move, you find that they're going towards a group or gathering of people, and there's some you know festivities going on. Uh, maybe the you know the town seemingly has kind of come out to greet these three men in. And what we find is is in fact two of these men, uh, one being Braxton, the other one being uh, Braxton's uh, right hand man. What is his name for the term for that guy? Vern. Vern, no, no, the guy they kill later on. Oh. I don't remember. Yeah, his hand. Basically the second in command for the, the Braxton's ranch. Um, they are leading a man, uh, and they hang him. And they hang him in a pretty brutal way. Basically, he's still on his horse. They tie the noose around his neck, and then they ask him, well, do you want to move the horse or do we? And he says, no, I'll take care of it. And then he tells his horse to giddy up, and then it just moves, and he's left sl- slowly suffocating to death hanging in this tree. And that's how the movie begins, right? That's what we see here. And so immediately we're kind of being played with to a certain extent, right? The expectations, and we're kind of left to kind of figure out exactly what is going on in this film from that. And I think the first scene kind of indicates to us that things as we see them, I think maybe we have to look a little bit deeper to kind of understand and see exactly what's going on in this film. And I think that the first scene is trying to set us up to be able to do that as we go through the rest of the Missouri breaks. Now, moving forward, um, we get introduced to a group of rustlers, right? And the man who was just hung kind of comes from this group of rustlers. And uh, Jack Nicholson, um, uh, character, he is the leader of this group. Tom Logan is his name. Tom Logan. And uh, he has a various cast of sundry characters who, let's just say, are not on the bright end of the intelligence spectrum when it comes to criminality. They are horse thieves for a living. Yes, um, they are horse thieves for want of another profession they can perform. Yes, exactly. And I mean, they hit upon some, uh, some various schemes. They have some problems with rustling. So they hit upon a scheme of, well, why don't we get like a layaway ranch, right? Why don't we get some kind of point in between where we are now so that we can more effectively rat- rustle cattle. And, uh, but they need some funds to bring this plan to fruition. Go ahead. I, I don't want to, I don't, I didn't want to derail that before we concluded what the scene was about and that does about sum it up but if you heard jack nicholson and were wondering how on earth we just kind of blew by that don't worry they didn't do that either he uh he opens with a monologue he's got they give him plenty of screen time they also give uh i won't uh if i won't bury the or bury the lead that's completely the wrong term (laughs) i won't uh i won't spoil the uh the second debut but this this movie was Highly influenced by its casting. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie was almost exclusively kind of relying on its casting because it was theatrically it was a flop. 
Um, but it did have two of like the biggest stars you could possibly have yeah, in a movie Oscar together. Winners. Yeah, both coming off of Oscar-winning performances. Um, because yes. this this came right up on the heels of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest mm-hmm. and The Godfather. Yeah. Um, yeah. So these were probably like two of the biggest Hollywood actors you could possibly put in a film together, mm-hmm. and they're put in this kind of quaint little western film. And given as much space as they need yeah. to act as much as they want to. And at think, least one of them. No, I think that this, what's odd is, is that the way that this, because I got I got I don't want to get put in the position of having to defend the Missouri Breaks. I mean, to me, I like this movie. I really love this movie. But at the same time, it is difficult to approach this movie with the expectation that this is a Western. Like I said, I think that the idea that this is an anti-Western is, I think, set someone up to approach this movie in a way that says that this is going to take all of the familiar tropes and, and themes about Westerns, and it is going to deal with them in a way that is systematically going to, to destroy what the, Wester, what the West was to classic Westerns. Oh, and I want to follow you there. Okay, although good. I do want to make it perfectly clear that I don't like this movie. Good, okay, good. Just right off the bat. It's, it's worth talking about what it does and does not do, but right. just <laughs> to get that, to clear the air on that, even on a second watch, this movie felt very weak to me. Okay, good. I don't want to sit and dwell on that, though. Okay. That's not, that's not worth the time. Um, but no, Tom... Tom, uh, they've lost their comedian because apparently the uh, the guy their their hanged man was the man who provided the mirth for the outfit, mm-hmm. uh, and the rest of them are not very charming individuals. <laughs> no, no, not um, at all. Well, little Tom, Ed, and uh, and uh, little Ed. No, what is it? What is who's? Because uh, they're actors you recognize here. Randy Quaid plays one of the members. Yeah. Harry Dean Stanton plays. Um, uh, Braxton. Yeah, Brack. Uh, no, it plays Not Ed. Braxton, yeah. And he's my one of my he's my other favorite of the bandits. And he's got a really great story later on in the film that kind of talks about the dis- the, the differences between the two characters, between Tom Logan and then I mean the criminality of the world, like why they do what they do and how committed they are to being lawless as well. I think is a kind of key. Well, that's feature one of the things. Like thing. as you move into this film, like you don't have unlike you know classic westerns, you don't have just the classic good guy bad guy because mm-hmm. first off our protagonist is a horse thief yes. so he's yeah. he's essentially a bad guy like you know he does crime for a living but he is our main character that we are following and supposed to essentially empathize with throughout this movie you know and then our our i guess who would be the good guy which is the guy that owns the ranch Braxton he's not necessarily the greatest of characters either mm-hmm. so there's you know we're we're kind of left in He's an amb- kind of a land baron. Yeah, hangs people without trial. And that's, and that's- yeah, he just <laughs> hires independent uh, parties to do his dirty work for him. I mean, so nobody it, we're we're existing in a gray area right from the get go because we don't have any good or bad characters. We just have different levels of fucking each other over. Well, and it's it's kind of essential <laughs> too because there is a kind there is a larger theme that kind of runs through. Um, you know, Westerns during uh, the classic Western period, because by the 1950s, you know, you get like McCarthyism in American society and Westerns kind of begin to alter and affect uh, in the classical Western period. They begin to kind of hint at this like anti-Western period that kind of comes from this. So if you take the kind of classic John Wayne Western, right, a big white dude is going to come in. He's either the sheriff or an outlaw, and he represents justice against some corrupt society. And the thing about the Westerns is that they do and are typically American. So 
one of the common things in like classical westerns will be this, you know, intrepid small businessman, if you will, who comes up against this, you know, baron in the field, wherever he's doing, you know, if it's a, he's a mining baron or a ranch baron, whatever, who does and is willing to go to immoral extremes in order to, you know, take over and drive out the business of the small time entrepreneur, if you will. And, you know, that's part of the reason we get this kind of like outlaw as hero kind of figure where, you know, if the Baron is trying to push out the smaller party, they're usually either buying or relying on corrupt political institutions. And therefore you need to be the outlaw within this, or they're trying to win over the representation of the law through the sheriff and the sheriff takes the stand and defends the small people. And that's the kind of the two classic lines you get through this. But as it, long as rugged individualism yes, is represented. Yeah, and wins out in the end as well. But in this, like you said, there is no real corrupt institution. So one of the key scenes is, is that after the, there's a trial and a hanging, we get another scene of how the kind of politics in this town works. And you are shown, like, in the, it's a meeting place. And it's a scuzzy building. It's like a barn it's a, slash it, bar. It's, it's a it's, bar. Yeah. Because they order drinks afterward. Right. But it's just the town gets together. They found a, a guy who is a habitual rustler robber. Just, yeah. He's, his, his rap sheet is long enough that he's going away for a long time. Yes. And they just, they give him a minute. And what, but what does he do? He explains the problems in his life about why he did. Yeah. And then he says, I want you to call me in, in the future, the lonesome kid. And the fucking town people are just uproariously mocking this person. You know, like they're just laughing at his plight. They're laughing at the idea that he would seek justice on his own, that he'd give himself a kind of quaint nickname to achieve like the lonesome kid. Like, oh my. And they just <laughs> fucking mock the shit out of this guy. And then Braxton, who's seemingly playing the kind of magistrate role for this town, Says, all right, we've heard enough, you know, time to do your 10 years up in hard labor, knocking rocks. And they fucking send him along his way. And once again, uh, I think the writer of this film, McGuane, Thomas McGuane, is trying to, you know, show us that there's, you know, th that the normal tropes that we would try to ground ourselves in, right? Who, who is representing this kind of white hat mentality? Uh, we're constantly looking through this film and we're not finding it. And we're really not finding it. And I, once again, he's not going to give us the kind of bear the, the the base of morality that we could rely upon now if i could just kind of move the pod a little bit forward and we'll kind of yes. get to some other issues here Oh, absolutely okay good so uh essentially the uh, tom logan and the bandits they managed to get uh some cash through a um hilarious bank uh train robbery attempt uh but they get the cash and they buy their ranch uh and when they do so uh tom meets one of the other main protagonists he meets uh braxton's daughter uh, adult daughter and seemingly jane. yeah what's that jane jane yeah jane and she seemingly might represent the kind of larger ethic within the film which once again i think is kind of flying in the face which is that the person who clearly recognizes that her father by kind of handing out death sentences without trials who's who values numbers over human life and his and the running of his business right she might be the kind of core ethical or moral anchor for this film but first off, it's a Western and she's a woman. Yeah. And then once again, we're kind of, you know, like normally, I mean, where's, is this Joanna Wayne in here? Like what's going on? Like, no, you know, it's, it's, it's not funny. Cause right off the bat, you almost get this feeling that she is like a, you know, some sort of, you know, like, uh, early. I described her as a first wave feminist. Yeah. Like an early day suffragette. But as the movie goes on, I mean, she may, she doesn't quite. I mean, yes, she's making social commentary on the fact that her father's really not a nice guy either, even though he's the one not conducting crime, quote unquote. But, you know, she's 
She's just a product of circumstance as much as the rest of these people are. And, and, and on ahead. top of that, <laughs> I mean, she's, she's willing to completely flip off the moral switch the second she gets the inkling that she might be able to appeal to Tom if she just shuts up. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, okay, I think, well, when, as Tom begins to kind of, basically the plan is, is that Tom is going to stay back at this ranch and seemingly play the law-abiding citizen while his 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 uh, rustler cohorts go off and steal ponies from Canada from the mountain yeah from the Canadians. mountain police mountain <laughs> Canadians so regardless of which the idea is is that Tom's going to stay home and in a sense play house right to live the life of a model citizen and that's when he begins his in a sense uh, in, interaction and you know love affair with Jane Braxton and now well that's that's when. So he yeah. actually gets pursued by Miss Jane yeah, Braxton. But you guys, okay, can I, we're watching this. You guys are pretty harsh on Miss poor Jane Braxton. I mean, why, what is the contempt or the frustration you feel with her character? I mean, what is it that? I just feel like she's a little stupid. Anachronistic okay. <laughs> dialogue, poor affect, and I don't like people like that. Generally. And I, 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 I will, you know, if we want to start digging into faults in this movie, I just don't buy her and Nicholson as a, I just don't buy that relationship. Why? I, I mean, okay, I'm sorry, but I, I, I realize it's a shitty town, and there's probably not that many people to pick from, and, uh, but, like, that's the one she targets is, like, Jack Nicholson and with, like, his underwear on his head out pretending to farm, like, and she obviously knows because of her dad that, you know, these are probably not the best people. I, I, I had a hard time buying the relationship, but I did find it amusing that she was really the pursuant in that like yeah. she's the one that kind of drifts by she's the one that wants to go for a ride with him she's the one that very plainly references that she's looking for intercourse um you know <laughs> it, anachronistic like yeah. the way that yeah. she approaches Guy, that is okay. so, so not that's what so like, like initially when you see her she seems like some sort of early day suffragette but then she just kind of seems like i said like kind of like a poor stupid you know uh, farm yeah girl that really, you know, can't make any better decisions than hooking up with Jack Nicholson, I guess. <laughs> okay. <laughs> May I? Go for it. Okay. By all means. So I think, once again, <laughs> what McGuane's, once again, we got to imagine, we got to understand what's going on here. McGuane is, is setting up Nicholson, right, to be that rags to riches story, right, to be that kind of classic Americani, right? And the funny thing is, is that when they're hatching this plan and they're figuring out who's going to stay behind, like Nick, you know, basically Ed, his his kind of second in command is like, no, you've got to do this. You've got to play the part of the kind of, you know, the straight laced rag to riches guy. You've got to turn this ranch around. You've got to make it profitable. And he's like, God damn it, I don't want to fucking do this. You know, he's flailing out, and it's kind of cool because, I mean, one of the little things they show you as the as the first rustlers killed in the first scene, they say, you know, you can tell a rustler when he takes his old boot and he cuts off the leg from his boot sews up the bottom and he keeps his ammunition in the in the in the in the jerry-rigged leg of his boot neck on his horse and when jack nicholson is reacting violently to the fact that he's got to kind of stay home he takes that 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 little carrying thing for his ammo and he fucking throws that across the scene right like kind of symbolically having to play this role and yet that is the person that she kind of identifies you know like we're she's Saying you know no, this is the kind of ideal in this in the West that uh, that we're supposed to be attracted to, and so when she kind of comes up to him, I mean, once again, the good thing is is that, I mean, not only are Indians in classical westerns portrayed as savages or at best 
barely apolitically by John Ford in a lot of his <laughs> films. But women are either whores or daughters, right? The kind of yeah, that's, you know, that's about it. Both here. That's, yeah, yeah, that's and about it. So, but once again, they are subservient. They are pieces in which uh, the stakes. They they set up the stakes a lot of times. They're damsels in distress, right? The kind of classic snidely whiplash tying the woman to the train tracks kind of classical stereotype is coming from this classical period of westerns. And so McGuane says, okay, Tom Logan is going to play the rags to riches classical western hero. Then she identifies that she's supposed to fall in love with him, but then she's the one who comes on as being aggressive in her sexuality towards him. And the funny thing is, is his reaction is like, well, I don't, I'm not like this. Like, I'm not seeking to just fuck you. Like, I'm not going to take you and win you. Like, this isn't what I want. And so it kind of flips itself immediately on that fact when she feels that she's going to, in a sense, take some power back. And then he reverses type by saying, well, I'm not going to take it even if you give it to me. Now, I like that interaction in particular. But also, I've been working on some ideas, which is that I, I think that Millennial culture in general has deadened itself to seduction. I really think that this is something that I find that when, you know, I interacted with people, I used to go out a lot when I was younger, and I find that most people, especially younger people that I interacted with, have really walled themselves off from being seduced. That's why young people don't date anymore. Yes. Yeah, we're almost at zero. We're going to be at zero population growth pretty soon because they're don't just going to stop. Kids. Plenty of people date. Yeah, they have children. I mean, they fuck, but they are. But they like, don't even do that very much, actually. If you're speaking about millennials, uh, well, not as much as we did. Well, I know, and it's like, <laughs> but like they are like, I mean, to seduce, especially in a non-vicious way, like like yeah. the idea that like Casanova kind of comes from romantic culture is that you can fulfill or be and recognize the desires and then be that for that person. And I mean, it is manipulative, and it might lead to kind of like you know seducto rape, if you will, as I've. Heard second, third, fourth, fifteenth wave feminists that's refer a, to that's it. A, that's a new one. Yeah, I, I don't buy it either. But the idea is that you know seduction is a part or is a wonderful part of interaction between people, and yet I don't find that a lot of people recognize that this is kind of the point. That there's an element of play here that is occurring between these two characters, and when they're trying to seduce each other, it is in a sense mocked and reversed because. The normal way that John Wayne seduces a woman is he comes sauntering up, uh, you know, uh, you know, peacocks in front of her with his manliness and his and his and his bulging six gun, and like she gets over overcome by this, and they go up uh, upstairs and do their thing in you know a thin walled environment. Like I don't, I mean, once again, that is deserving of the kind of mockery, and it's directly shown, I think, in this that someone who thinks she's going to reverse that on him. Suddenly, Tom Logan is the one who's like, well, you know, I got to get revved up, you know, like I got to be seduced in this. And I think it's kind of funny to show that interplay kind of breaking down in the expectation that this is just that sexuality is something that is ruled by aggression. And I think that's what he's kind of playing with here by, by flipping it and then turning the tables on the aggressive one in the sexual relationship. I mean, that's fine, but it has to be well executed. And I don't think this was well executed. You don't think so? No. Why not? Because there is, the way, uh, th to begin with, the fact that she is attracted to him despite in the previous scene where she's introduced to him, sees him as being exactly like her father, unless that's supposed to be some sort of Oedipal play, 
I don't, I don't buy that. Yeah, I like. She doesn't. Her attraction to him doesn't. It it is unearned to me. It's too fast. It was a little. It was a little goofy. It's too fast, and it reverses course deliberately over the course of one scene. And I didn't see any reason for that. Um, And granted, that is to some degree how seduction works. That's you don't necessarily have to agree with yourself intellectually to be carnally uh, drawn in. However. I prefer in a movie where the plot gets to make sense for it to make sense. <laughs> right. Um, and I found that thoroughly unsatisfying. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to come up with a counterexample because that would be more useful. Because the problem is the example I keep coming to in the Western genre is the Disney rendition of Tombstone, where it has a thoroughly unironic, um, who's, it's Wyatt Earp and whoever her oh yeah the the damsel in that movie and that the, one she's the actress that one develops perfectly naturally but there's no irony to it so that one's relatively and it, easy and she to do. kind of pursues him a little bit like they have some oh, banter no, no, that, and they yeah that, that is a textbook yep. romance like that one works perfectly i'm trying to come up with an example in a western and i just don't i don't have the repertoire to to come up with what it should look like but this just rubbed me the wrong way the whole time. Right. And actually, a lot of interactions in this movie did, not, yep. to, not to fall down this hole. But that's, that's, I think we, well, no, we can I, kind I, of bring up things in the middle of the plot. Well, no, no, no. Actually, this. The one in particular that struck me the hardest, though, we're not to yet. And I don't, I don't want to bring it up until it happens. So We're almost there. Yeah. So as we've kind of established the main players here, right? We've got Braxton. We've got his daughter, Jane. Her developing relationship with Tom Logan, who's playing the straight man on this ranch. His group of rustlers have gone to Canada to bring back to hatch a major plot to do this. But now, really, the <laughs> the movie by about thirty to forty five minutes in gets its final major character. <laughs> and once again, we see the introduction of this character uh, comes about because the rustlers, in revenge uh, against Braxton for having killed their 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 member of their gang, tit for tat. Yeah, tit for tat. They kill. Uh, his right-hand man. And in response to this, Braxton uh, hires a regulator, a guy, a regulator by the name of Robert E. Lee Clayton. And Clayton is played in one of my favorite movie performances of all time <laughs> by Marlon Brando. He, his first shot of him appearing is of two horses coming across or over a hill, and Jane is on the porch of the Braxton home, compound, if you will, and she sees the it's horses. A yeah, it's a ranch. A compound, you know, the ra- the horses come into and, and and stop in front of the horse and there's no riders on them. And then suddenly Clayton pops out from the side of the horse, surprising poor Jane Braxton and informing her that she, well, she didn't see him coming. And he says, yes, that was exactly what you were meant to see. <laughs> and we get the sense that, that Robert E. Lee Clayton, first off, Marlon Brando, older gentleman, silver, long silver hair and wearing initially a kind of odd you know, I mean, he looks like someone went to a tourist shop and then bought clothes in a Western tourist shop and then put them on him. And yeah, that's got, what. Yeah, that's he's what. He's got it like a white leather like. jacket with like some the tassels the and fringe. some beads. Um, no, the wardrobe budget for this movie, whether it was extravagant or not, they used as much of it as they could find. Yes. Yeah. But once again, Robert Ely Clayton, <laughs> this character, the regulator, is an embodiment of the anti-Western. So we get him, and first off, the way he speaks, well, he speaks with an Irish accent, initially, for some reason. I don't know why. He just speaks with an Irish accent. With an Irish brew. Yeah. Yes. He comes in, and he is, 
He's invited into the home, and they're actually holding the funeral, the, the viewing for this poor ranch hand. And once again, we're out west, no technology. So in the coffin, they've put ice all around him to keep him preserved that for the viewing. Good. Yeah. And he comes in into this, and he's in the funeral, and he says, well, did you find any information from the man? Um, you know, uh, and they're like, no, he, he didn't give us any information. And he says, oh, did you coddled him? And they're like... You know, they're like, they're, they're puffing their chests out, right? They're these manly ranchmen. Like, coddled the man. Like, no. And he says, yes, you coddled the man. And the result was the death of this poor man. And he wretches up the dead body. And then, he, you know, people are just incensed and they're, oh, my goodness. And then he drops them and this massive splash of water and ice goes across the room. And what we get, and once again, what we see here from this character is exactly the kind of role he's going to play in this film. A very colorful Anton Chigurh. Yes. Or even, a, you know, almost a type of Joker-ish type character here. Yeah. He is a true eccentric. Yes, exactly. As I said, he is one of film's true eccentrics. And not only that, but he is someone who flaunts, mocks, and ultimately represents all of the kind of classical, and I got to say lame, approaches in the kind of Western mythos. He is going to upend them all. And what he is, in a sense, is a Irish-speaking you know, regulator who is perfumed, who is, will go against all semblance of manliness that the kind of classic Western embodies. And we'll kind of see this demonstrated as we move through these scenes. So the regulator ultimately uh, figures out through wonderful interactions between uh, him. He's a bird watcher, of course, like yep, there's no, yes. as I can attest to, there is no seemingly less manly a hobby to engage in with most people than to tell them you enjoy bird watching. Um, <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of, you just have to be older, I think is what it takes. Wonderful. Yeah. You okay. just, you just need to wait 30 years. And you, you have, have, you you have, have good to, eyesight too. Which ah, helps. Excellent. Okay. You, yeah. you have to be old enough that you're tired of hunting. Hmm. Is when you start bird watching. Yeah. Well, I, like I said, I like shooting, but I hate killing. So I, I don't know where that fits in. But anyway. Again, you got to wait 30 years. <sighs> maybe. Okay. Might come around again. Yeah. So he also essentially, and I, uh, maybe we can just kind of skip ahead to where we're at here. I mean, first off, he kind of sees through the ruse of Tom Logan, right? I think he correctly kind of identifies that this, not everything well, is right with this guy. He sees through the ruse of everyone. He also sees yes. through the ruse of Braxton. I mean, he sees that Braxton isn't totally in the right here. He mm -hmm. also sees that Logan is probably a piece of shit, just yep. pretending to be a nice rancher. He sees through everyone's bullshit. He, Jane's bullshit as well. Yeah. He's yeah. practically a Mary Sue in this movie. I mean, mm -hmm. He feels like he has our camera. Mm -hmm. Most mm -hmm. of the time, yes, exactly. Like everything we know, he is aware of. Yeah, yep. excellent. Um, and I mean, granted, that's supposed to be his job, mm -hmm. but as um, the regulator, yes, yeah. But that, I mean, that it's like uh, Winston from Jackie Brown. Mm -hmm. I found him. How'd you find him? That's what I do. That's what I do. Yeah, yeah he, no further explanation. He's, he's required. very much of. A, he is very much a. This is what I do. Mm -hmm. So stop questioning how I do it. And type of guy. And it's possible for a normal Western to contain someone like that, but that is a kind of like black tie professionalism that is not common to the period. Like mm -hmm. it's a it's a very common trope. The the quiet professional is all over the damn place yep. in our modern in in modern culture yeah. but to inject that into this movie is weird especially at least from that long ago it's much more common now but once again you i think you you referenced Anton Chigurh and i think that you know once again that is the the way we expect these things to happen right but why do we expect them because that's what our culture's told us to expect like 
People that would have or build, base their lives on a certain kind of principle are not eccentric and bend the, way, bend the boundaries of gender. People that are professionals or hold themselves to higher ideas don't lie or profess to lie in the very sense of who they are as an identity. And I think that that's just lame. I mean, I think that one of the cool things that, and I think one of the other major ways to read this movie outside of its anti-Western approach, right? But is also a sense that the reverence that, the, the, the way in which Robert E. Lee Clayton enjoys the anarchy that he brings into something, I think is very, very important. And ultimately what is cool about Robert E. Lee Clayton as a character is that he actually brings some fucking wildness to the West. The one thing you do when you watch classic westerns is that you realize how actual little wildness oh, there, there, well, are, the, there is. The, the joy of being American is that we were still founded by Puritans. And man, that puritanical morality is is very strong God. in westerns. Like, yeah, people are not are not real exciting in in well, westerns. And on a bigger on a bigger like movie scale, you know, we're we're talking 76 Brando. So, you know, we've we've made it through the classic period when he was young and good-looking and blowing everyone's mind, and now he's basically so famous and untouchable that you just you hire him and you let him do whatever the fuck it is that, that he Brando does. Brando wants to do. <laughs> and this movie did damn sure to get out of his way and just let him do whatever the fuck it is that he does. So, but, and I think <laughs> just because Marlon Brando is probably one of the best actors of the 20th century. I mean, if you've never, if you want to see some of the classical performances, Streetcar Named Desire, yes. mute, his version of Mutiny on the Bounty is kind of classical. But once again, he goes against type. He plays Fletcher Christian as a dandy in that film rather than being this suave Errol Flynn embodiment of manliness. No, he plays him like like Doc Holliday in Tombstone is essentially what he does. Yeah. And so you can you – can, I mean the Godfather is this kind of classic reserved. But I think that what Let's is kind of neat – about that one. Yeah, I know. But what is kind <laughs> of neat about Brando is that – he is a physical presence on the movie set. Um, one of my other favorite films is uh, Reflections in a Golden Eye. And the way that he kind of embodies character through the method uh, part, way of acting is that you don't – inflection and the way the lines and what you say is half the point. The rest of the story is told through the, your movement, positioning, and gestures. And that is something that he kind of very famously – brought into film as well. And um, well, and the thing is, but like what I was getting at with the film thing and I, okay, so you might get my reference. You're never going to, you, you won't get it, David, but I will not get this reference. Okay. So like what I mean is like, they just let him do what he does. So there's this movie candy in which they have basically the best <laughs> actors that you could find in whatever 69 or whatever that Marlon Brando's one of them. And basically they just gave them all a bunch of money and let them do whatever the hell they wanted. There's not even a story to this, but Excellent. this is, I feel like this movie did that a little bit with him. They're like, we, we paid a lot of money and you've got star power. Like you just need to, to do your thing and we're going to get out of your way. You have mm -hmm. five weeks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the other funny thing, I own every hat. Yeah, and we will find you a wide variety of hats for every scene. So, but the other one, one of the, I once again to kind of ruminate on Brandoism here is that uh, the movie he does after this, and another one of his most famous roles in a famous movie is Apocalypse Now, when he plays Colonel Kurtz. Now, Colonel Kurtz is supposed to be in the film. We're led to believe that he is the kind of 
embodiment of a badass American soldier. That has gone the off t- the deep end. Yeah, but, but by the time we actually see him in the movie, he's bald, overweight, and just ruminates on T.S. Eliot poems. Yeah, and, and slices kids' arms off. Yeah, exactly. A real he, American hero. Yeah, exactly. But once again, like, you you know, when, he, when Brando shows up 120 pounds overweight, and then, you know, Francis Ford Coppola, the director of Apocalypse Now, is like, what are you doing? You got to get Colonel Kurtzy. And he's like, I already am Colonel Kurtzy. You know, like, this is it. This is Kurtz, you know, like, he, but once again, like that movie is famous in particular because he plays against type. He go, he, he plays with our expectation of what we're going to see or what we expect from what we're told. And in a way that I think is more illuminating to the larger issues, which is that, you know, what made Vietnam a tragedy was the fact that it was a kind of spiritual crisis about who, how we see ourselves. And so he plays Colonel Kurtz, not as a, a secular military person, but as a kind of odd spiritual leader. And it's I think it just, in a way, it might not make sense when you say it specifically like that. But to a certain extent, that movie feels like it revealed a truth in a way that it was told, not necessarily in, in the specifics when we say, well, is this logical or not to happen in Vietnam during this time period? And in a way, I think this movie, The Missouri Breaks, can be seen in that respect as well. It is highly allegorical. It is intentionally self-aware that it is going against type. And it is willing to be seen as either illogical, tone-deaf, or even intentionally incorrect in the way that we're expecting to see a Western. And that's half the point. Like I said, part of being wild is recognizing that you're going to step on a few toes in order to be wild. If you're anarchic, you're not fucking playing you know, uh, giving respect to social traditions, you're intentionally going against them to show people they're just as absurd and intentionally uh, restrictive as they are intended to be. That's why they're conventions. They're meant to keep people bound up in a nice, neat little way, to keep them dressed in a certain fashion, to keep them, you know, nice and and Protestant and fucking Puritan. And no, Right. This is something that's coming out of this that says we are boldly rejecting this and we are aware that it is going to seem untoward to the real elite class. And that's exactly what this film is meant to do. Like I said, it's trying to bring wildness back to the West. It's fu- OK. That's with with one character. But, yeah. Uh, well, yes. I mean, yeah. but, but once again, I think the larger ethics of the, I mean, the larger interactions have tried to play with this boundaries in its own way as well. So, like, you know, like I said, so tonally, we've got a, a bit of an interesting Western here. We've got, you know, Brando is just allowed to be Brando. He's a fucking eccentric in a Western. And, you know, they're probably trying to bank a lot on that. But one of the odd things about this now, Westerns tend to be violent in the sense that you've got a lot of gunslinging going on. <laughs> yeah. A lot um, of pew, pew, yeah. pew. This is a PG movie. Now, Arthur Penn is no, he's a. You know, he's he's no stranger to film violence. His claim to fame was Bonnie and Clyde, which came out t- uh, about 10 years before this. And it was renowned for its film violence. It's a very good movie. Mm-hmm. This movie's PG. And just for a Western in general, it is very, very tame on its violence, which surprised me going into this because I had not seen this movie in its entirety mm-hmm. before we uh, we did this. The other thing that throws the tone off a little bit on this this movie, especially from a Western standpoint, is the odd lighthearted score. So, <laughs> so you know, as we're working through this story, you know, we've got Nicholson and the ranch hand's daughter. You know, they're kind of playing house a little bit on this ranch. The guys are out in C- Canada stealing horses. 
our regulators kind of stirring shit up. Then, like, all through this, we have a tone that is 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 not serious at all. We have, like, this light, and you'll pro- David will probably I- do a better job describing the music, but there's this weird light-heartedness, like, this movie's almost supposed to be fun, but it's not that fun, but it's trying to tell us we want to be having fun. I'm going to... I'm going to have to insert music because yeah. without I, – I don't I think I can – I can't – the problem is I can <laughs> describe the music, but it's not going to do a good enough job. So I'm just going to – I'm going to do a 15-second spot here and just put the music that you're supposed to relate what I'm saying to mm-hmm. over it. This is read off the IMDb page for The Missouri Breaks. Tom Logan is a horse thief. Rancher David Braxton has horses and a daughter worth stealing. But Braxton has just hired Lee Clayton, an infamous regulator, to hunt down the horse thieves one at a time. One steals, one kills, one dies. Yeah, it it makes it made the movie tough for me because I couldn't yep. figure out what like like the tones the music was giving me was not working with what I was seeing and left me sort of confused at various points through the film. But it was by John Williams. Yes. Yeah. So also, sandwiched, oh, sandwiched right between his work on Jaws and his work on A New Hope. Freaking Star Wars. I love it because there, there was a serious threat that uh, Star Wars was going to have a substantially more uh, funkadelic score. Mm-hmm. And this is a taste of what it very much could have sounded like. Nice, nice. Um, and that's that's wonderful. Well, um, once again, I think why why have a music like this in the film? Uh, if I can maybe give once once again an idea, which is that if you listen to other western scores, especially from the classic period of westerns, uh, this is very much in the tone in which those westerns are in place. So once again, what we see here is that the score itself is not unique to westerns. But what it appears from modern eyes is that, I mean, once again, I mean, if you go back and you watch a Western movie from the 50s, you see groups of white men committing genocide against a race of people in the Native Americans with this gallant, hokey, Hollywoodized soundtrack over top of it. I mean, that's what's jarring and, you know, like what is actually happening in this film, the music that goes along to those films from the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. That shit's jarring to me. Like, once again, strip away what, what you're being told is happening here, that these brave entrepreneurial American ragamuffins, rags to riches stories are defending themselves against the savage Indians who want to rape, pillage, and murder all their beautiful, pristine women. Like, that's what they tell you is going to happen. But once again, we know the context for this fucking thing, and it's not heroic necessarily what is going on but in this, this film. This movie's not heroic or lighthearted either. Mm-hmm. And its its soundtrack <laughs> yes. tells me these things throughout the whole movie when the movie tells me none of these things. It, this soundtrack sounds like... I mean, I, I don't even know what to relate to. It would be... It feels like if you were to take the attitude of a Hanna-Barbera... Yes, yeah, so like, I was a cartoon, yeah. Flying through space. This is a space cowboy soundtrack, <laughs> is what this is. Like, uh-huh. it's so... Nothing bad can happen while this music is playing. But nothing good happens at any point during yes. this movie, which is why it doesn't make any goddamn sense. Yeah. Like, I'll give it points for being funny, but it is very much out of place. So, 
But I think that once again, where the film is, you mentioned an, like kind of like being anachronistic to a certain extent. Um, another one of the points I wanted to make about you know the wildness being brought into this film. Um, what, I think one of the best scenes to kind of demonstrate this is uh, when uh, when Tom Logan, Jack Nicholson's character, is introduced to the regulator. So Tom Logan is playing the respectable Tom Logan, you know, ranch owner Tom Tom Logan, and. He is introduced to the regulator who's, you know, obviously meant to sniff out him, you know, and his yeah. band of, uh, and his bandits. But he is rescuing a foal, uh, a baby horse, which has kind of been trapped in this mud, in this mire of the creek that's around there. And he's struggling and wrestling with it. And the horse, I mean, foals are adorable. I mean, there's nothing, I don't think there's anything quite as neat as a, as, as a foal. Um, I mean, in terms of cuteness, they're, they're pretty adorable. Massive heads and then these tiny little pinky bodies. You ever seen a foal like a baby I, horse? I, there, there was one in the movie. Right? I, yes, but I, I mean, don't go person, near horses. No, they're even more amazing in person. I got to tell you. Um, anyway, they're acceptable. Yeah, I mean, grown up, grown adult horses are terrifying oh, fucking creatures. Oh wow! But like baby foals or anyway. So he's pulling this thing out. Jack Nicholson is steeped. In, <laughs> Nicole, he's, Nicole's he's not having in, any of this. He's steeped in mud. Uh, and he gets introduced to, uh, and he has a conversation, and he talks about the regulator. He's like, "That's a like a dry gulcher, someone who shoots someone far away without ever having to see him." And and uh, um, uh, Brando's character's like, "That's right, that's exactly right," you know, like yeah. fully owning what he is. But while they're having this exchange, Braxton's horse like has this intense shiver noise thing that animals do, and it interrupts Nicholson's you know line. And then he lets the horse do his thing, and then he continues on. Now, why leave that in the film, right? And we were—I mean, one of the scenes where there's like this montage of the rustlers, you know, with the with the music on top of it. They're kind of just riding towards Canada, and one of the scenes shows one of the characters' horses is just like freaking out, about ready to buck him off. And we're like, you know, even we we talked about while watching it. You're like, it must have been fucking miserable to do this in the West. And I think that's kind of half the point, right? Like, the film shows us that it is dirty. The film shows us that these are actually animals, right? The, the horses do things, that they don't cooperate all the time. I feel like all Westerns do that, though, because I have never seen a clean Western. Like, I, they're all dirty, all of them, every single one of them. <laughs> I don't care how classic you are. It is a dusty, fucking dirt-filled, goddamn horse manure lifestyle. Once again, that that's... That is just... I'm so glad I don't live during that era. You, I think, I think, you know, I, for one thing, I see you have a list of your favorite anti-Westerns there. I don't see a list of your favorite classic Westerns there. I've never there. watched one. So there we go. But once again, they are, <laughs> I've they never are seen a John Wayne film, relati- thank you. They are clean fucking things. And the horses well, all are merely. All of cl- Hollywood in the classic area era was pretty, pretty scrubbed and squeaky clean. Yes. And sanitized. And yes, this film, once again, sanitized. does not do this, right? It shows us that horses are parts of this horses are not just passive bystanders bystanders horses in the plot are or in the everything film. horses are how our rustlers are trying to make a living horses are how our rancher tries to make a living horses is how we get from point A to point B mm-hmm. horses are you the most your money. important goddamn thing in the west and so like yeah. i think that once again there are indications and just little moments that show us that horses are not invisible in this film right they are part of the world and i once again it's just nor these, are they unharmed it turns out yeah exactly they, the it, american humane yes. association does not endorse this movie yes it, this was the nice. 70s you know like um yeah well so i'll kind of talk about peck and paul later maybe okay <laughs> why didn't you just pick a peck and, i okay here's my biggest problem with this whole podcast screeching halt why didn't you just pick a peck and paw movie so 
<laughs> you are the biggest Peckinpah expert I know, yeah. and nobody defines non-traditional Western like Peckinpah. Like, why couldn't we have just gone with the master? Okay. <laughs> the question. That's the question that's been burning me all okay. week. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> I wanted to... You know, do some. I, you know, part of the films I think I've been trying to pick, especially us as well. We're trying to we're trying to strike a line between things that everyone will know, and I think turning people onto things that most people won't know. Peck and Paw. I I think that if someone's listening to this or someone seeks out a western, I think that there is more available to kind of grasp a hold on. That I think Peck and Paw is more accessible. Peck and Paw doesn't need a podcast. This movie, he does though, so people know to watch his well, now, films. Yeah, now well, fucking watch a peck and pop right, film, you right. bastards. I've never seen a peck and pop film. Okay, well we're friends, and we will do definitely do this. And maybe I might choose one for my next one. It might be Days of Heaven next. I don't know. But that's not peck and pop. I it know is a it good isn't. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'll choose Straw Dogs, the only peck and pop movie that didn't fucking take place in the West. That one's that one's acceptable, even okay. though it has nothing to do with a Western conversation. So, but I, once again, I, they're both anti-Westerns, and I agree with you there. But. I've wanted to choose, the, choose this film in particular because I find and enjoy the moments of, of anarchy within it. I like the idea that it is both representative of the anti-Western and yet I think develops on something that Peckinpah really doesn't develop on, which is that Peckinpah is a misogynist to a large degree in a lot of his films, and he builds on and he takes the anti-Western trope, but still is very based in its ethos and manliness. And part of why I really admire and like this movie is not only does it reject the kind of tropes and themes of classical westerns, but it intentionally flips them in a way that we get a regulator, like I said, that's a true eccentric, that bends gender, that bends nationality, that bends morality, in a way that you just don't find in other films. And so when I was going through this, I was torn. I gotta be honest with you, I was really torn. But I settled on this because I felt that not only would it encompass everything that I love and, and love about westerns and anti-westerns but that it also had this additional element of anarchic behavior which i find is sorely lacking in people's understanding of what behavior is because look when i was younger i dabbled in subcultures in american society and what i ended up finding is is that they are just as mainstream in their morality right like gothic people or punks are not like unique moral people they're just like regular people who dress differently, you know, and listen to crappier music. Like, like they're not unique. They're not morally out there. They're not like, you know, sp pushing the bounds of sexuality. They're, they're that's because anarchy means that you litter. Yeah, ex yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's know, that's about the extent yes. of punk rock anarchy. Well, exactly, and it's mocked for a very good reason, right? I mean, the, the true anarchists do not identify with subcultures, which is why by the time I was twenty. You know, I'm dressing with sparkly blue shoes and pink sunglasses because I'm like, fuck it. Like, I'm not going to conform to subcultures anyway, right? We're going to uh, embrace a kind of anarchy in our personalities. And that's what this film has. And that's what Peck and Paul lacks. Well, uh, anyway, so that's why. So can we wrap this fucker up? So why didn't that catch on? Oh, I think because people, I mean, I mean, people are lame. I mean, by and large, this movie, I think this movie fails because... When people are shown a true eccentric, like once again, like why is he doing this? Like if that's if that's your question when you see this film and you're like, why is he, like why is he behaving this way? Like you know, because we used to get that questions too. We're like, why do you dress that way? Like why do you wear a dog collar, Nicole? Like when you try yeah. to try, yeah, you try to do something that because I'm cooler than you exactly right <laughs> because I've fucking got the confidence to do something different. Like it needs no other justification other than to fucking 
you know, to take the confidence on yourself to go against type or societal rules because you fucking can. And I like, will, I will grant, I will, I will give that to you. Brandon, Brando does not need like any, he doesn't need to explain himself at any point. Fuck during no. this. And, you, and, and no. the thing is, everyone else around him is so, like I said, is so, uh, you know, like kind of conventional. They're bound by the tropes. They're of so the bound by the Western. convention that, like, why would you bother explaining yourself to these people, anyways? I really, I could tell you, but you wouldn't fucking get it yeah. anyway. And like, I mean, it's it's people often joke that it's that it is something that kind of it can only be attributed to like the folly of youth or adolescence. But yet, when you look at you know, you look at like the beat culture that kind of does have a lot of resonance here. You look at like some like an Allen Ginsberg or a William S. Burroughs. I mean, these guys are like pushing bounds of like, you know, consciousness, drug use, sexuality into a realm that like people are just not willing to accept at that time period. And so I think that once again, there isn't a sense that this film feels it has to justify itself or or pander to what a classical Western should be. No, it's going to let its fucking self ex- be expressed and not feel that it has to explain what's going on. And, 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 it's, and in fact, it might even do something intentionally that is upsetting to tone, custom, and forbearance because it's it's trying to jar that kind of sensibility out of people. And I fucking respect it. I'll be honest with you. I th- I find it enjoyable. Like, to paraphrase uh, a, what a literary critic said of the poet William Blake, one t- uh, William Blake one time, I am more interested in this movie's madness than the sanity of 99% of other movies. Like, this movie is is quite mad, you know. And I find that intensely more enjoyable and interesting than the fucking supposed sanity and rationality of like an Avengers movie. Because I just think that those things are inherently more enjoyable in life than what fucking makes something supposedly conventional and enjoyable. Are you going to make me pick Speed Racer? <laughs> no, I mean, well, I got the next pick yeah. and I've got this covered. Don't no, worry. once again, I'm not saying that it's only good movies that represent this, but I have to recognize, I, I think that we all need to recognize that. What is lame about everyone doing that is what makes this movie fucking unique. I mean, you watch The Missouri Breaks, you're like, this is an odd movie. And I think understanding why you think it's odd, not what what makes it odd, but why you think it's odd is the point. No, I think there's, and as I tried to preface as early as I could, <laughs> I drew my line in the sand, recognized that this mo- I, I will never see this movie again unless under duress, probably. <laughs> um... <laughs> But that doesn't ma- that doesn't make it not worth talking about. Absolutely, there's, there's still things to talk about. There's pl- and there are plenty of there are plenty of good little ideas in it. Actually, one of the one of the better countercultural ideas that you didn't you didn't mention, Ryan. I don't. know. Oh yeah, it, please no. Yeah, was, I'd love think, to, I'd love to know if I missed something the, in this the, film. The rustlers the rustlers go up to Canada mm-hmm. because Ed. And everybody knows that the Mounties, the reason nobody goes up to Canada to steal the Mounties' horses because the Mounties are the best police in the world. Mm-hmm. And Ed's logic is that the reason nobody steals them is because they're all afraid of it, and that's why they're not going to be defended. Yeah. <laughs> because they've gotten soft. And that is that is perfect, this is so crazy, it might just work yes. logic that drives so many other movies. It's the idea, it's, it's the last thing they would suspect. Yes, exactly. And then it turns out, they do suspect it, and the reason why they're feared is because they actually know what they're doing. Um, and they just, it, it completely fails, it, it, it fails the heroic arc that it should have taken. Well, and, and not only that, but then, like, the, as, as, as they're bringing back these Canadian oh, the horses. Line in the... Yeah, the, the Canadian Mounties <laughs> chase them into America. And part of this plan also relied on the fact that they 
They, they'll, how they'll dare they violate the sovereignty of America by coming and taking their stolen property back? It's really, I mean, it's not even legal. Yeah, it's not even legal. <laughs> oh God, there's there's stuff that I do enjoy in this movie. Well, and also too to kind of ruminate on that um, Ed's character as well. I think one of the one of the cool and heartbreaking moments in this film is when Ed talks about why he's a wrestler, right? Why he why he went to criminality. And he had a family, I guess. I don't know if it was his dad or he went to live with a family. But he lived on a farm yeah, for a long yeah, time. Yeah, and he fucking hated it. And his dad or whoever was the male caretaker was was a fucking bastard to him. But the, the, the young character, Ed, had this dog. And, you know, he fucking loved this dog. And what happens is they're eating dinner one day. And his fucking, the dog comes up and just licks the butter. And his dad goes off and fucking shoots his dog. And he's like, I fucking got my shit. I killed that son of a bitch and I've been fucking running from that ever since. And, you know, this idea that there's this kind of punishment for something that seeks its own enjoyment and would, would, would just react naturally, would see the opportunity to lick some butter and take it and you'd fucking kill this thing as a result of it. I mean, that is a kind of way in which, you know, society kind of grinds down people that, you know, seek out their own enjoyment in their own ways. And, you know, he fucking kind of rebels and reacts against this. And my other favorite interaction between the two is Ed and Tom. And when Ed comes back and they've the fucking the 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 Canadian plan has gone up in smoke. They've fucking been chased back by the regulator all Brando's the way back to the ranch. Him. Brando's on them. And they comes back and they've been fucking harried the lo- whole way and fucking Tom Logan is is growing shit on the ranch and making out with the ranchers with Braxton's daughter. And he comes over to him and he's like, "What the fuck's going on?" And Tom's like, "Well, look at look at my garden and look at the the orchard, you know, his trees had insect eggs. Yeah, they had all cankers all in them, and I cleared them all out. And and he's like, "What the fuck are you doing? Like, you know, <laughs> like we're we're criminals. It's time to get back to criminalizing." And you know, Logan is on, like, on the heels of them failing to be criminals. Yes, and then they, they're coming back with their tail between their legs, and Tom Tom's, Tom's doing fine. Yeah, yeah, he's got he's getting laid. Like too. I said, he's playing house, working okay for him. <laughs> and you know, he's and he's and he's like. You know, have you forgotten who you who you were? And all that Tom says is he's like, well, I just I just didn't want the orchard to get ruined is all, you know, and he's like he's kind of bought into this role of being the hero. And, you know, this guy pulls him back and he says, look, the enjoyment you're fucking after, like it will be taken from you in the end. And this is the only way that we can secure what we want here. And I just think that's a very cool moment. And once again, to me, you know, having bought into the film anyway, I guess I'm a little bit more susceptible to that interaction and the acting because Harry Dean Stanton and Jack Nicholson are good fucking actors. No, 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 no. I, I like all of their interactions. Yes, absolutely. I think they're very good. Yeah, and I love that fucking scene in the movie where it seems that Tom has embraced that kind of white hat mentality that he can live this life and love this woman. We're about to have a hero in this yes, film. and yeah. then we're not. <laughs> but, but it doesn't happen. But yeah. there's still a price on his head, so. So, okay. Wrap up the plot here. Basically, the rustlers decide they're going to take Braxton for everything he's fucking worth and hit town, uh, and they execute that plot. However, unfortunately for them, uh, the regulator begins to slowly pick them off one at a time as their seeming ambitions to have this one final big score takes place, but then gets taken from them each individually. Um, and so on and so on. Yeah, exactly. There's some really great interaction between Randy Quaid and and um, and Marlon Brando's yeah. characters. Some really cute scenes and moments in that. Um, you get more of the really wild behavior of Robert E. Lee Clayton through this thing. Um, 
But in the end, I mean, are we gonna can we just kind of wrap this thing up plot wise and be done with it? I think so. Okay, cool. So, uh, in the I end, I covered most of what I wanted to talk about. In yeah. It, so, uh, in the end, the regulator uh, has killed everyone save for Tom Logan, but he thinks that he's killed uh, Tom Logan. Not only that, but Robert E. Lee Clayton um, has basically also during this period kind of just taken over the Braxton Ranch. Like he basically kicks um, uh, Braxton out of his own home, takes over, and you know is basically kind of running the joint and. You know, once again, he's kind of regulated everything, right? Like you said, he sees through everyone's bullshit and he fucking gets away with exactly what he knows how these people will behave and how he will act. And he fucking takes what he can, what he takes and he, and he takes power where he takes power. And uh, after he thinks that he's killed everyone on the ranch, um, he goes back and Tom Logan eventually gets his revenge against Robert E. Lee Clayton. I won't disclose the way that, which that happens, but I'll say that was... We see Robert E. Lee Clayton in the uh, Marlon Brando's There's character. There's a confrontation. Enjoying, yeah, well, he's enjoying his moment. And as he's singing a love song to his horse, his horse starts urinating in the middle of his, of his love song. So once again, I love that. That's great touch. But then, yeah, it's a good scene where he gets, uh, he gets his revenge. So Tom Logan goes back to the Braxton Ranch. It appears that Braxton has had a stroke as a result of his downfall at the hands of the rustlers and the regulator. Um, and he shoots the, uh, uh, Braxton who may be, or may not have been faking this to lure Tom over to the cabin, uh, to the ranch. Uh, but regardless, it's Logan and Jane as the only ones left at the end of the story. And in the end, do they ride off in the sunset together? Nope. No. Right. Classic Westerns not going to allow us to enjoy this. Uh, he, the two go their own separate ways and maybe they will meet at a former day beyond. And that is the end of the Missouri Breaks movie. It, it destroys a lot of the basic tropes and themes and uh, allegorical messages we see from Westerns. And I think, once again, it firmly establishes itself in the anti-Western genre. So, Nicole, you've yes. mentioned that you have seen some anti-Westerns. Are there some other, perhaps, anti-Westerns that maybe someone else could enjoy? I mean, this is a, this is a goofy little, little movie. I... I don't know that I would recommend this as an intro point this to is the, Westerns. This is a pro movie. This is yeah, for the pros. I, I would maybe start out somewhere else and maybe work up to the, the lesser known, more eccentric anti-Westerns. Yes. So um, you got some films for us, right? Yeah. So and, and like I said, I actually had not, I'd only seen selected scenes from this before. I had not sat and watched this whole film before we did this podcast. Um, but I have, I, I did a little list. I have six films that I would recommend if you want to try and jump into the Western genre. And uh, the first would be, you know, the original groundbreaking Peckinpah film, The Wild Bunch. Mm -hmm. uh, that was 1969. That's when, uh, you know, film violence was really starting to gain some momentum. And Peckinpah was right there in the forefront of that. Excellent. Uh, the next one, if you want to go off the beaten path a little bit, is also a Peck and Paw film, but it's it's a little out there. It would be Pat Garrett, Billy the Kid. Mm -hmm. uh, Bob Dylan is in this film. Yep, gives an excellent performance. Uh, it also stars Chris Christopherson. It's very good. Slim Pickens as well. Um, and then I will jump to '93 Tombstone. I think that it's this is the Disney one, right? Which one is that? The one with uh, Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, as far as if, if you are in the modern era and want to watch a Western. You want to kick ass movie? Yeah, you really can't go wrong yeah. with Tombstone. <laughs> it's, 
it's very hard not to enjoy that yeah. film. Yeah. Um, oh, it's. It, in, I mean, and but once again, it has a character that plays against the tropes as well, right? Yes. Doc Holliday by Val Kilmer is a dandy character, yes. right? Yes. He yeah. is the dandy, but still no, some like really... No, like I said, all of, all of these fall somewhere in the non-traditional yeah, yeah, Western. Yeah, speaking, They're not speaking classic. Speaking maverick actors of the of yeah. the century, mm-hmm. uh, Brando and Kilmer definitely yeah. fit that Yeah, so, I mean, Tombstone, me. you know, if you want to indulge in a Western, you can't really go wrong with Tombstone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Just 93. don't count the shotgun blasts or you will drive yourself <laughs> insane. Um, next, next I want to jump. Hollywood guns, people. Next, I want to jump to '95 with Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man, which Uh stars Johnny Depp. It is. It doesn't take place in the West. It takes place in in Alaska, but we're still in that same, uh, you know, moving towards the West industrialization stuff is not established yet. Um, and it is very non-traditional. It moves at a very odd pace. It's black and white, but it is. It's good stuff if you can sit through it. Yeah, Neil Young does the music for that as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's solo guitar through the whole song, uh, the whole movie, and that really links the kind of thematic elements as you go through it. It also has some of the best presentations of of Native American it's culture. It's got uh, some excellent really, Native, Native really American stuff in it, uh, blended throughout the whole film as well. And then the final one that I'm uh, that I have, if you really want to jump into a non traditional western, is 2007's The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Um, Brad Pitt plays Jesse James in this, and Casey Affleck plays Robert Ford. Uh, if you hate Ben Affleck, it's okay. His brother is a way better actor than he is. I don't know why <laughs> his brother doesn't get better roles. Um, but that is, that's another, it, you know, we Jesse James, classic Western character, but that is definitely a non-traditional take on kind of a classic Western story that's been done a lot of, you know, that's been done over and over again. Um, and it's it's a very, very good film. Yeah. Deliberately paced in that film. But yeah. then also, I think there's a, the visual sense in that film is very, very well done also. And it kind of, as it as it admittedly slowly moves through this, it does have some really great uh, approach to it, uh, an approach to it. And um, like I said, it's just, it's really well done. Um, I also got a couple ones to offer as well. Uh, there was a recent one that I had seen um, called the, the Three Burials of Melchiades Estrada. And that is a Tommy Lee Jones, really? Holy shit, that is a good fucking, it's a modern Western. I mean, since it takes place in modern times. Okay. But um, but that is a doozy of a movie. It's a Tommy Lee, uh, Tommy Lee Jones mm-hmm. uh, stars in that one. Uh, and that is uh, very good. Uh, I'm going to go back to the 70s a little bit and recommend something like um, uh, High Plains Drifter. Uh, this is the first movie that Clint Eastwood directed. And just to kind of go into these ideas of like, where we get the kind of anti-Western tropes from, right? If classic Westerns are all about defending the little man and the town and the seeming goodness of American society that's just accepted, anti-Westerns are kind of represent the area that maybe this isn't fully the well, case. It, it shows... It, Anti-Westerns tend to show the moral ambiguity of both sides of, uh, you know, both sides of the morality. Like, in anti-Westerns, we tend to see that the bad guys aren't completely bad and the good guys aren't completely good. Like, everyone's kind of in this moral, ambiguous jumble. Uh, Yeah. Which works well in, you know, situations where you don't have, 
like I said, established law and order and everyone's kind of just winging things. You know, at the end of the day, not everyone's a good guy or bad guy. Everybody kind of falls in the middle somewhere. So, which is, I, I just like, I like that we, we study this as its own genre because it is, with the exception of the most egregious blockbusters, a de facto reality mm-hmm. of modern Hollywood that that's true. Yes. We've it, completely absorbed that. But it's but it's something that at the time was really, I mean, striking out against this. So, uh, for example, in, in High Noon in 1952, is by, is a guy named Gary, uh, stars Gary Cooper. And Gary, the essential plot of High Noon is that Gary Cooper plays the sheriff of this town and that there's going to be this, like, you know, really famous criminal, this bandit, this killer that's going to be released from prison. And everyone knows that he's coming to town to kill this sheriff who would put him in prison. And... You know, he's basically he's coming on the train at high noon to fucking kill the sheriff and the sheriff. The whole movie is going from different major people in in this town who made him sheriff asking their assistance to help him deal with these bad guys. And everyone's telling him, like, look, man, they're only coming for you. Like, just leave, you know, run away. Well, he's and he, you know, are you going to help me? And they're like, I'm you know, I'm sorry. You know, I've got a family to look after. I've got a business to take care of. You know, like, I can't help you. And in the end, you know, Gary, you know, High Noon says that, you know, maybe the town isn't fucking worth saving. Like, maybe these people aren't worthy of the sacrifice that justice takes to make a reality. And it should be said that in 1952, John Wayne hated High Noon and he fucking developed a personal hatred towards Gary Cooper. And the two famously got almost got into into a fight backstage at the Oscars because of what High Noon and the, the overall message of what High Noon represents to the kind of upstanding American values that John Wayne felt these movies were supposed to portray to people. So if you want to look at something like High Noon, that's a great example. Shane uh, is another great movie that also uh, dives into these issues. Um, McCobb and Mrs. Miller, McCabe and Mrs. Miller uh, with Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. Robert Altman. Robert Altman. This is a great fucking Western uh, that is also during this time period as well. We've mentioned, and I've got to mention Days of Heaven by Terrence Malick, which is another just, you know, it is. I think that's time and Time and place were in the Western, but I don't feel like that's like a straight up Western right. film, even though like geographically and, and you know, where it takes place in time is, is in mm-hmm. a similar area, right. but it's, I Suffice don't know if to I would say there are a lot of Westerns. Yes. Westerns. Oh yes, absolutely. But okay, yeah. yeah, quick to say High Plains Drifter, Clint Eastwood, another great one. Yeah. And then finally, we forget, we have yet to mention the spaghetti Westerns. Uh, such as Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Fistful of Dollars for a Few Dollars More. And then my favorite of the Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West uh, with uh, Charles Bronson and um, Peter Fonda. That is a great, great fucking movie. Uh, and if you don't believe me, just watch the first 17 and a half minutes of that movie and you will be convinced that this is something unlike uh, any sort of movie you have ever seen before. It is spectacular, spectacular opening sequence in that film. So that's what, like 30 recommendations? Well, I Get think that, it. but once again, out of a out of a pool of thousands, <laughs> and not only mentioned on top of the fucking TV shows we could have gotten into, but I think once again, it. I mean, this is... It's a hell of the, a genre. It's Americana. Was, yeah, if there was something that I would show an alien about, you know, what is it about, Amer- you know, American cinema, if I had to show them three films, one of them would be a fucking Western. Like it would just would be because I think that there is that it represents those things that are so innate to how we represent ourselves and how we think about ourselves. And I, I just, I like Westerns. 
I mean, it's just something about how I was raised, if you will. Um, but I, like I, I don't said, think you're alone. Yeah, and I like them. I like them at their cheesy best to a certain extent. I love Stagecoach by John Ford, but at the same time, I love them at their most anti-westernness, and I love the Missouri Breaks. And these two films, once again, I understand if you don't like them, but once again, if you find it odd, difficult, or upsetting, I just want to ask. Not why you think it is this way, but why do you think this about this film? What, why do you think it is odd? And kind of recognize and identify within yourself how you view movies, and more importantly, why you feel that something is odd, and try to understand and pinpoint the cause of that reaction to it, rather than the film itself, which is what I think movies like this can help us kind of pinpoint and look into ourselves with, rather than purely projecting judgment onto something. Hmm. I mean, my only addition to that list of Westerns is uh, True Grit. And you watch either one of those because they're both good, but uh, the uh, the Coen Brothers version of it has the best child actor performance of all time in it, so that's probably worth watching on that merit alone. Um, Nicole. Yes. Do you got a movie for us? I, I, I do. So we're wrapping up the breaks here. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. So final thoughts or so okay. I've given them already. Um, I guess. No, I know. It sounded like we had basically concluded okay. Okay, at cool, this yeah. point. Okay, Unless someone has fine. something else to say. I'm, I'm, I know. Like I said, uh, you know, this is it's it's an interesting little it's an interesting little film. And if you like Brando performances, you definitely shouldn't miss this like as part of your Brando repertoire. Mm-hmm. But um. You know, it's this is maybe a little out there to just jump off, you know, if you kind of want to feel for Westerns, because it definitely falls outside your your typical realm. Um, it's got some goofiness in it that I was a little mixed on, but um, but an interesting little film mm-hmm. nonetheless. Um, I am I am going to pick a genre director uh, this time around, um, but I'm not quite going with his genre of films in this. <laughs> Naturally, naturally, yes. we, we naturally, would, we would never want to pick a recognizable film. Yeah, that would oh, be. Oh, this against... is recognizable. It's just not, you know. It, anyways, right. okay. So I'm gonna go with John Carpenter's They Live. Oh wow, 1988. Um, you know, John Carpenter, Wait, renowned they, horror director. They Live! Exclamation point. Yes, yes, I believe that is the full title yes. of the film. <laughs> uh, you know, this one, this one is is not quite as horror oriented as a lot of the Carpenter films, but it does play on, you know, media and society. And it has one of the most ridiculous fight scenes (laughs) ever, ever, ever in a film. Nicole, put the glasses on. Putting (laughs) the glasses on. Um, Yeah. So John Carpenter, this is, um, uh, what is the, what's the ice movie that they're in? The thing. The thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. This is gonna be good. Yeah. I I I could have picked the thing, but I've actually watched that one recently, and I feel like there'll just be more. There there will be more to talk about with this one because there will be some you know prescient issues that we can draw back from our current society and see how we're still just cogs in this giant alien machine. Excellent. Outstanding. All right. And with that, get on that, peeps. That's going to do it for this edition of The Movie Crew. Nicole Ryan. Thank you. yippee ki Good morning, everyone.